From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous President's Day to each and every one of you. We take some of the hardest working people in the history of our country and we celebrate them by not working. <laughs> we are, uh, some of us are off today. I yeah. guess we're all, we're not off today. Are we off today? We're not off today. But Father Tregilio has something better to do than to be with us. So we're. I'm going to be at a faculty meeting. Okay. Well, so you're going to be in a faculty meeting. So the faculty. I'd, ra- I'd rather be on the air. <laughs> wow. Okay. This is going to be on the air. You realize that, right? Yes. <laughs> but they won't be able to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> so, because they'll be in the faculty meeting. Yes. <laughs> so, we wanted to give you some fresh, brand spanking new content today, uh, even though we weren't able to be with you live. So, we won't be taking your phone calls today. If you'd like to be part of a future mailbag effort, then give us a email to openline at ewtn.com. That's openline at ewtn.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program, and our host, as you have heard, is Father John Tregilio. And Todd kicks us off on this mailbag edition of Open Line Monday. Can you explain why Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Okay, that's an excellent question. He is not falling into despair, as uh, some crackpot theologians were maintaining, especially the ones that we were told about when I was in the seminary, he's quoting scripture from the Psalms. And he's also identifying that human nature, okay, uh, can feel abandoned. Mother Teresa of Calcutta talked about seven years of desolation where she felt God had abandoned her. She felt he didn't care. Her intellect told her otherwise. She never stopped believing in God, but uh, she felt in her emotions that God had sort of ignored her. And Jesus is affirming that that we go through that. Now, he, as the Messiah, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, he could not despair because it would it's in, metaphysically impossible. Uh, he is hope itself. He is faith, hope, and love as a member of the Holy Trinity. But when he says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He's just saying what was on the lips of, all, of everyone, uh, even Our Lady, all right, um, it's pierced by the by the sword of Longinus uh, in her son's sacred heart. She can feel uh, abandonment without losing faith. Um, you know, it's uh, abandonment is not the same as um, despair. Despair is what Judas fell into, whereas uh, this idea of I'm, I don't understand what's happening. Uh, Father Benedict Rochelle in his book Arise from Darkness. Uh, makes this very clear, and I highly encourage people to read that book. Again, a very special mailbag edition on this President's Day of EWTN's Open Line Monday. Um, This is a good question, Father. Rose wants to know, why was Satan allowed to do so much to Job's family? (laughs) Job had a bad day. (laughs) Well, you know, at the beginning, we're told, because God has confidence in Job. So it's not that... uh, you know, let's see how much Job can put up with. But uh, Job, who has no idea that God and Satan had this conversation, so he doesn't know why any of this is happening. He doesn't know when is when or if it's going to stop. 
And then after it happens, you know, he's expecting God to explain to him, and God says, no, did you make this? Did you do that? No. So God doesn't give him any answers, uh, nor does he give us any answers. But Job prevails and perseveres because by God's grace. And so what God is doing through Job is teaching us to persevere, that uh, being close to the Lord does not mean you escape adversity or you even avoid the cross or suffering, but you're able to survive it uh, by God's uh, sustaining grace. So it's not that you know Job is like singled out and you know, let's have fun with him. The, the devil has the false idea that, oh yeah, Job is your friend, God, because uh, things are going well. Let's shake it up and see what happens. And God goes, go right ahead because I have confidence. I have faith in Job. And Job proves himself uh, by that. Um, again, no phone calls today. A mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. Justin wants to know how he can explain the Eucharist as a sacrifice. Well, especially uh, in this time of renewal of the Eucharist, it's a good question. The sacrifice, we look at it at a number of levels. First, the very practical, basic level. How do we get bread and wine? Well, the wheat that is grown has to be crushed, pulverized, and then baked in the oven to become bread. Grapes have to be crushed and fermented to become wine. So, in a sense, that they're both sacrificed. Um, we bring up the gifts of the bread and wine at Mass. The priest offers up the bread and wine. And then he re we recall, uh, because this is a reenactment of Calvary, but also of the Last Supper. At the Last Supper, Jesus took bread and wine and said, This is my body, this is my blood. He did them separately, and the priest separately consecrates uh, the wine and, and, and the bread so that when you have two separate two separate consecrations, you have a separation of body from blood. So this is my body over the bread. The priest elevates, he genuflects, then he takes the chalice of wine. This is my blood. He elevates it and then genuflects. When you separate body from blood, you've got death. It's a sacrifice. But Good Friday was followed by Easter. So Jesus doesn't stay dead. So although we, we have the, the death of Jesus on Calvary on the altar, we also have the resurrection. So that at communion time, uh, we don't say the dead body of Christ. It's the risen body. And it's the risen body, meaning it's both his body and his blood, which is now reunited. Because if it was separate, he'd be dead still. But no, he's, he's risen from the dead. So in the one host or in one drop of the precious blood is the whole Christ. So the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross on Good Friday, he's certainly connected to Holy Thursday, which he purposely did the night before he, uh, he was betrayed and suffered on, on the cross. And likewise, the sacrifice of the Mass allows us to have the fruit of that sacrifice, which is the Blessed Sacrament, the Holy Eucharist. Uh, Germain writes in, what is the difference between Protestant and Catholic belief on what happens when we die? It depends on what uh, Protestant theologian you're, you're going to cite because uh, it, it spreads the gamut because you have, even within the Lutheran theology, uh, Anglican and Episcopalian, Presbyterian, Methodist, and all the other uh, varieties of, of the Protestant denominations. Um, certainly, we're on the same page, I would say, in most cases with uh, the Lutheran and the um, Anglican because... Uh, 
they tend to stick to the same teachings of the first councils of the church that at death there's particular judgment the thing is they don't have a magisterium they have a teaching authority and uh, although both would have a catechism of sorts the book of common prayer or the catech the lutheran catechism um you don't have that definitive uh, authority of teaching that we do in the catholic church but certainly i think they're they're on the same page with us other denominations, um, uh, Baptist and 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 uh, Congregational, um, are a little bit different, um, but we do believe that there is a particular judgment at death. A person is uh, decided if they're going to heaven or hell. And Catholic, obviously, there could be purgatory before uh, going to heaven, and uh, then the person goes wherever that that's decided. Um, whether or not. Everybody ascribes to that outside the Catholic Church. Um, you know, it, it's up for grabs in, in that sense that you can still be uh, a Lutheran or Episcopalian and say, you know, I don't believe that particular judgment happens. Um, they don't kick you out. Uh, as a Catholic Church, we say you must believe all the tenets that are in the, in the Catechism. And Sarah wants to know what's the best way to face a crisis of faith and combat doubts? Hmm. Well, to. Uh, own up to the fact that you do have doubts. And, you know, uh, I think it was St. Augustine uh, who coined the phrase, uh, see, follow, assume, I, I doubt, therefore I am. It was a contradiction well before the time of Descartes where he said, cogito, ergo, so I, I, I think, therefore I am. St. Augustine says, I doubt. We all question. We all wonder, where did we come from? Um, it's part of our human intellect because we don't have all the answers. We can always learn more as we go along, we can even learn from our mistakes. So the best way to, to combat doubt is not just say, okay, I'll just believe uh, everything and, and not ask any questions. It's to look for answers. So many Catholics don't come to the Catholic priest, to the parish, or they'll watch this wonderful show or, or, or call in or write in questions. They'll buy into some answers that somebody gives them when they knock on the door. Um, why is that? Um, you know, we've got answers. Uh, we may not have all the answers, but we got some good ones. And it's, you know, up to that person to try to dispel those doubts. But if you have doubt, don't let that pull you down. Look for the answers. Uh, again, we're not taking your phone calls today. A very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday with Father John Trujillo. You can send us an email, openline at EWTN.com. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. That's right. We're not taking your phone calls today, but uh, it's a very mail special, rather mailbag edition of Open Line Monday here on this President's Day. Jordan writes in, how are we supposed to understand Jesus receiving the vinegar on a sponge on the cross? Was this an insult or compassion from the Romans? Well, the jury's still out on that. <laughs> um, the church has not made a definitive pronouncement, and uh, different translations and versions and different gospels, you know, there's some variations on there. Some say it was uh, sour wine. Some say it was vinegar. Uh, some say it was an insult. The Romans were taunting him. Others say it was an act of pity and compassion, um, 
you know, there's so many different variables uh, involved in that. But uh, I would say it was part of his suffering, you know, this uh, idea of, of being offered relief. He rejects it, okay? Or he's being insulted because, you know, they stripped him of his clothes. They mocked him. They put a crown of thorns. They put nails in his hands. So they're not going to have any compulsion to stop at that level. So certainly if this is meant to be an insult, they're going to go ahead and do it. But it could also have been uh, an attempt at some minor bit of kindness. Oh, this, you know, we feel sorry for the poor guy. He's about to die. Uh, let's give him a little little taste here. Um, but because there's no definitive bottom line on which way to go, we're allowed to have a couple of interpretations on that. Um, you can rely on CNA to cover the mission and activities of the Catholic Church, including social, political, moral, and cultural issues from a perspective of faith. Uh, for the latest Catholic news, just visit catholicnewsagency.com. It's an online service from EWTN News, and you can get timely news updates directly to your email inbox. Just visit EWTN.com and click on subscribe. Again, it's a mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. Uh, next up is Gabriel, uh, who wants to know, do your... Boy, Gabriel's asking a question that's going to put a... Your answer is going to put a lot of people's hearts at rest, Father John. <laughs> do prayers right. count if you are distracted while saying them or don't feel good while praying? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Believe me, every prayer is efficacious to the degree, all right, that we um, open our hearts completely. Now, you can be distracted. I'm distracted sometimes when I'm in my prayers. We go to the chapel, and you can see some of the guys are so distracted, they fell asleep. <laughs> but it's better to pray than not pray. The optimum, the best-case scenario is that I pray with uh, attention, with devotion, with reverence. But if I'm in any way distracted or if I'm tired, um, if I'm not really getting much out of this, it's even better because I'm not praying for what I'm getting out of it. Oh, I get a nice little warm fuzzy. I, I feel good about it. I'm praying because I need to pray. And uh, those are often the best prayers because if you're in the mood or if you get a, an answer that you were uh, wanting and getting, you're satisfied. But what happens, what happens if you feel there's no answer, or you don't like the answer that you get, or you feel nothing. It's never a waste of time. So please, uh, never stop the prayers, but try your best to avoid, when you can, uh, those distractions which are under your control. So seminarians dozing off in the chapel puts them in pretty pretty good historical company, huh? Sometimes it's the priest who also falls asleep <laughs> in the chapel. Well, they're... They have something in common with our first Holy Father. Yes. <laughs> Jeremy writes in, how can I learn more about the faith on an intellectual level and put that together with an emotional or personal relationship with God? Well, obviously we want both because um, one thing we learned when we were little kids, and it's in the it's in the New Catechism, but it's also in the Baltimore Catechism, why did God make me? God made me to know, love, and serve him in this world so as to be happy with him in the next. I can't love what I don't know. So it's like when a, when a boy and a girl meet each other for the first time. They don't know anything. So they ask, what's your name? You know, where are you from? What do you like? What do you dislike? And then they start dating. They find out things about each other. And the more they know, the more there is to love about that person. And the same with our relationship with God. The more we know, 
the more there is to love. So the personal relationship is integrally, organically connected to what we know in faith. So I would say certainly uh, to learn about, read the scriptures, read the catechism. Uh, they, they certainly, the more, most footnotes in the catechism are from sacred scripture. There's also things from uh, the ecumenical councils and from St. Thomas Aquinas and fathers of the church, but the majority are scriptural. And uh, you can also get the companion to the catechism. But you want your intellect filled with as much knowledge as possible. And then your will, your heart, uh, there's where your relation, your personal relationship with God, which is obviously uh, completed and having a, a dialogue with him. That's what we call prayer. I didn't see any footnotes in there from Catholicism for Dummies, however. Well, we wrote it after the catechism was published. <laughs> Good answer. Let's take a let's take a listen to a question that came in on our listener comment line. Hi, this is Mary from Illinois, listening on Covenant Radio, and I just heard Father say that the plenary indulgence on Divine Mercy Sunday, you know, that you you couldn't have any attachment to sin, but I was under the impression that that's the only one day that you can gain a plenary indulgence even if you had attachment to venial sin, as long as you made a valid confession, uh, went to Mass, said the chaplet. So I'm confused on that one. Yeah, that, this is why the Vatican uh, made a clarification, because originally what was being told to people, innocently, but inaccurately, was that the Divine Mercy was a special kind of indulgence that uh, you didn't have to be attached and uh, the church clarified it. No, this is De- a plenary. Detached. Detached, yes. That this is a regular plenary indulgence, uh, like any other plenary indulgence, which means if you have any attachment to venial sin, it defaults from a plenary indulgence to a partial indulgence, which is not bad. But if you want it to be a full plenary, which is the full remission of all temporal punishment due to sin, you must be detached from venial sin as well as go to Holy Communion, receive, uh, go to confession, and pray for the intentions of the Holy Father. So they made that clear because people were misunderstanding, and even some priests, I have to say, and it wasn't their fault because uh, when the Divine Mercy uh, first message first came out, uh, there were different translations uh, of uh, St. Faustina's diary. But the Holy See, especially the Congregation of Doctrine of the Faith, under Cardinal Ratzinger at the time, made this clear. So, yes, you must be uh, detached from uh, your venial sins, which is very difficult. It is possible. But if you can't all the way, you still get the partial indulgence if all the other things were satisfied. And, you know, this whole business about being detached from all sin, including venial, is kind of difficult for us to get our arms around and our and our heads around, uh, but I kind of like, as well as any, your kind of description of what that looks like. Yeah, the detachment means having fond memories of those sins that maybe we enjoyed. Um, it's that it's not that you don't have regret or contrition, because cer- certainly that's necessary, but because they're venial sins, I may not have, have confessed them in the sacrament of penance, which I'm not obligated to do, um, but the attachment again, is sort of like that residual connection. And one of the things I think uh, a description of purgatory I enjoyed was when someone explained it as it's like 
looking through an electron microscope and seeing dust mites. When my allergists show me what dust mites look like, I said, oh my gosh, they're horrible. He said, you can't see them, so you're not afraid of them or conscious of them. But now you see what they look like. And I think purgatory opens our eyes to see sin, even venial sin, as God sees it. They're like ugly dust mites that, that are nasty. And we kind of close our eyes to that too often. So to be detached means to have no, not just recollection or or uh, fondness or regret that uh, I can't do it again, but to really have a detestment for uh, venial sin as well as mortal sin. Adam writes in, if God knows all, how could he possibly, how could we possibly have free will? Well, knowledge is separate from the will because the intellect and will are separate faculties. So God has a divine intellect. God has a divine will. The intellect is what we know. The will is what we choose. So the fact that you and I have a free will in no way uh, impedes God's um, divine intellect, which knows everything and knows because he exists outside of time. So he already knows what we're freely going to choose. That's because he's outside. It's almost like when you're watching a movie you know how it, the movie ends because you can speed it up and see how it ends, but that in no way influenced how the thing was going to turn out. And um, Pedro would like to know, what does the Catholic Church believe regarding the relationship between Scripture and tradition? We see them as coming from the same source, the Holy Spirit. God reveals himself, and that's what we call revelation, and sacred Scripture and sacred tradition come from the same place. They're not in competition with each other. In fact, they, they depend on each other because before sacred scripture, you had sacred tradition. You had the oral tradition. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were not writing as Jesus was giving the Sermon on the Mount. The text was written after the oral tradition took place where people were verbally told uh, when the, um, the apostles and the evangelists orally spoke what Jesus said and did, and then the Holy Spirit inspired him to write, and then after it was written, it was a sacred tradition which then decided which books got in the Bible, which books did not, uh, and what order they're in. Uh, all these things show that there's interconnection. Um, there's not this antipathy, and it's not that the Catholic Church prefers sacred tradition over sacred scripture. We say they both come from the same Holy Spirit, and they both must be considered a source of truth. It's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. Father John Tregilio is in the house. Uh, we're answering some emails, emptying out the email bag and clearing off the EWTN listener comment line call um, line. So if you'd like to be part of a future um mailbag program, then send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. That's openline, all one word, at EWTN.com. And put Father Tregilio or uh, Monday in the subject line, and we'll get it to the appropriate folder. And um, we can also... Uh, take your listener comment line calls by listening to, um, or listening to, listening to, how am I doing, by calling uh, our regular uh, studio line after 4 p.m. Central Time. And that number is 833-288-EWTN. 
It's 833-288-3986 after 4 p.m. You'll be asked to leave a message, and it might be part of a future mailbag program. So it's EWTN's Open Line Monday this President's Day. Um, We're not taking your phone calls, but we are emptying out the mailbag. Stay tuned. More to come. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. We're Catholic, Father. We have to have a, a letter from Mary. And Mary writes in and she says, Why is the Pope of Rome the successor of Peter? Wasn't Peter the Pope in Antioch? <laughs> well... The thing is that St. Peter ended up and was martyred in Rome. Um, Both St. Peter and St. Paul were both martyred in the Eternal City uh, under um, the Emperor Nero. And because he died in Rome, uh, he's considered the first bishop of Rome. And then all the other successors, Linus, Cletus, Clement, Sixtus, as we mentioned in the um, Roman canon, uh, going all the way up to present day with Pope Francis. So there's been an unbroken lineage connection, but always the Bishop of Rome is simultaneously considered the Pope, the Holy Father, the Supreme Pontiff. Uh, Now you have other patriarchs, obviously, the Patriarch of Antioch, the Patriarch of Alexandria and of Jerusalem, and then of Constantinople, but the Patriarch of the West or the, the Bishop of Rome is the one singular uh, supreme head of the church, uh, the Pope. Again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. Let's take a listen to another one of our listener comment line calls. Hello, my name is Rebecca. It's January 23rd, and I'm listening to Spokane Catholic Radio 107.1. And somebody just called and asked about taxes and how can we justify paying taxes that go towards abortion. And the answer that John, Father John gave was that we we can't we couldn't we sh- we we can't justify paying taxes that go towards abortion, and that that it's wrong. And I'm wondering I, I don't I didn't really understand that because I am a small business owner. I live in Washington State. A huge amount of tax money goes towards a Planned Parenthood and abortions, and it is really difficult to be third of our income right now of my family income goes towards taxes every month. And I know that I'm paying for a school system that is completely broken and super woke. And I'm paying for taxes that are going towards Planned Parenthood. And it's wrong. And I feel like it's not a monetary issue as much as it is a an ethical issue. How can we give to Caesar what is Caesar's when Caesar is clearly spending our money in a way that is sinful. And I feel torn about that, and I don't know how to go forward. I don't know if you guys know how to go forward. And wondering if you could give me an answer. Okay, well, that's that's a very good pertinent question. And first of all, um, you render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and what Caesar does with that, okay, is his culpability. So when the government spends our money on immoral things, 
they're at fault, the, the representatives or the, the executives who sign off on that, our responsibility, all right, in terms of as taxpayer is not to withhold because we don't have that option. If you withhold paying your tax, the IRS comes after you, all right? Um, they even got Al Capone. I mean, they, they, they'll, they'll stop at nothing. But morally speaking, I have an obligation um, to express to my uh, representative government to write to my Congress uh, people uh, or to senators or to the president or to governors or whoever is in the position to where that money is being spent to say, I do not want, because they represent us and they're spending our money. So I have to, I have to express that. Too many of us taxpaying Christians uh, don't say enough. And so I can't absolutely guarantee where that money's going to go, but I can say to those who represent me, I don't approve. And I think other people don't approve. And, when, and I can express to them that if you maintain this, we're not going to vote for you again. Um, there's where we have some influence on influencing those who are already in office and as well as those who might want to go into office. Um, there's where we have our connection. But in terms of where the money is spent, once that tax money has been collected, it's out of our hands. Uh, I, I do not uh, advise anybody to say, well, I'm going to withhold 10% of my taxes because 10% is being misspent. They'll arrest you. They'll confiscate your, your garnish your earnings or take your house away. Um, in terms of moral theology, uh, we only have at most a remote uh, cooperation materially. Uh, there's no culpability unless you and I have an opportunity to say, I don't want to spend on that. So contact, write, phone, speak to these people who make those decisions and vote for people who are going to uphold uh, a moral use of that. Certainly, you know, we've seen it before. It was the law that, um, you know, public money could not be used for abortions and then it was overturned. Who overturned it? Elected a people, whether it's the executive or, or the legislative. So there's where we have the influence to, to, to uh, put our money where our mouth is. Um, Curtis writes in, when the priest uses the incense to go around the altar at Mass, is he spiritually disinfecting the altar? <laughs> that's one <laughs> uh, That's one theory I've never heard before. Um, I mean, if that were the case, I would have used a lot of it during the Wuhan. I'm sorry, right <laughs> off the bat. Um, the symbolism of incense is not purification as is with holy water. The symbolism of, of incense is that, like uh, from the Psalms, like burning incense, may our prayers rise up to heaven. So as the smoke arises from the thurible, uh, that's what is being thought of there, is that our prayers are rising up. And when the altar is incensed, okay, uh, it's being um, affirmed in its holiness because the sacrifice is going to take place on that altar. So it's not... Um, purification as with holy water uh it's more of this idea of sacredness of what is what's going to happen there um again a very special mailbag edition of ewtn's open line monday let's take a listen to another listener comment line call hi this is jason from kalamazoo father i was wondering james 210 says if someone keeps the whole law but stumbles one point to become guilty of it all. Doesn't this thought, in a way, kind of negate the idea of venial and mortal sins? Aren't all sins mortal, if not taken care of by faith in Christ? 
Uh, thank you very much. Bye. Okay, well, we do want to make a distinction. There are the two separate kinds of sins, mortal and venial, because mortal sin kills the life of grace. That's why it's called mortal. Venial sin wounds it, but it's almost like the difference between a, a malignant tumor and a benign tumor. No one wants a benign tumor. They don't say, oh, well, thank God it's not malignant. You got something growing on your face, and the doctor says it's benign. You say, I still want to take it off. I don't like it, but it won't kill you. I, I still don't like it. It doesn't belong there. Um, what St. Paul is talking about is that we have to put our whole heart and soul uh, into fu- into fulfilling God's holy will. And therefore, you know, you can't say, I'm, I'm, only, I'm keeping nine out of ten commandments. Isn't that good? It's not a, a thing of probabilities or playing the numbers, you know, uh, what, you know, what kind of advantage you have. I should be keeping all ten commandments. I should be obeying all of God's laws. And I should be avoiding all sin, mortal and venial. But mortal... Is like the worst case scenario. It kills the life of grace, and if I die in mortal sin, I'm going to end up in hell. Um, if I don't commit mortal sin, I still might spend some time in purgatory because I committed venial sin. Optimum would be not to commit any sin, and then you know you're, you're, you're in good place. But um, it's not an issue of either or, as Pope Benedict often would say. It's it's both and. Both mortal sin and venial sin are bad. Mortal sin is worse. 8332. Well, how am I doing? That's the number you don't want to call because it's a very special <laughs> mailbag edition <laughs> of EWTN's open line Monday. But if you do call that lump, that number, 833-288-3986 after 4 p.m. Uh, Central Time, then you can leave a message for a future mailbag edition of Open Line Monday. Scott says, does the Catholic Church use grape juice instead of wine for alcoholics? Uh, I have to make this very clear. It's not grape juice as you would find in your supermarket. So it's not Welch's or whatever brand you like. Uh, This is called Mustum. It's grape juice that winemakers use to make wine. So that Mustum, if left by itself, would become wine eventually. Um, Grape juice that you buy in the store will never become wine. It'll just become sour. Um, So alcoholic priests can have the special permission from their bishop, which they grant very easily, to use mustum, uh, which is that special wine that you get from the vintner, um, and it's not your typical commercial-grade uh, grape juice. Now, um, I've known some priests who, uh, you know, they're unable to even drink the mustum. Um, you know, you have to consume something. So even if it's just a dip of one drop, uh, on, on the host uh, is sufficient uh, for that. Um, but the grape juice that many people see in other denominational churches, that's regular grape juice. That's the commercial stuff. I know sometimes you see it. Uh, I was once in a Presbyterian church, and they, when they had communion uh, a couple times a year, it was like a little plastic container. You open it up, and there was like a little uh, chiclet size uh, piece of bread in there, and then there was grape juice in the bottom. Uh, we don't do it that way, okay? We have um, the wine that has, has to be grape wine that's naturally fermented. Uh, the mustum can be used, but with the bishop's permission. Let's take a listen to another one of our listener comment line calls. Hi, Father. My name is John from Harrisburg. I have a son-in-law who's transgender and a daughter who's sticking with him. 
I don't know how far down this road they're going, but they seem to be content. And I'm praying for conversion and things to change for them to see the light. However, I don't know what else I should be doing. Just wondered if there was any advice you could give me. Thank you. Well, uh, my, my heart certainly goes out to you, and, you know, being that I'm a priest of Harrisburg, uh, even more so. All you can do at this point is pray, uh, make some um, very small but um, frequent acts of mortification that you can do, uh, make sacrifice for them in their name, but uh, talk that over with your confessor or spiritual director. I don't want you doing this by yourself. Um, but certainly the prayer is going to help. And let them know you love them. You love them unconditionally, but that doesn't mean you approve of everything they do. But Jesus said, a prophet is not without honor except where? In his own home. And when you've got adult children, you know, uh, when they ask for advice, certainly you got to make that attempt. And you have to, you know, uh, very carefully maneuver around this because you don't want to let them believe that this is normal and okay. The same token, you want to know that doesn't change the fact that they're still your son or daughter, even though they want to change from being a son or daughter to a daughter or son um, with with that. It, it I've seen so many times on television and on the internet, people who've had this um, done where they change their genders and they're not happy and now they want to revert or if they can't, they just say, you know, how miserable they are. Um, they felt that they were duped into this. Um, this is a, someone's selling these people bad goods here. And our society and culture, especially the social media, uh, is making it even worse. Um, but you trying to give them a theological explanation when they're not necessarily looking for it may not be that uh, efficacious. But certainly praying for them, showing them charity and kindness, but the same token, not supporting them in the fact that, you know, you don't want to pay for this. Um, you know, uh, I, I remember I had a relative where, um, you know, they wanted to throw a, um, a wedding shower for someone. Uh, their daughter was um, going into an invalid marriage. I said, you really shouldn't be sponsoring this. I mean, it's, it's one thing to, you know, say, honey, I love you and I'm never, I'm never, I'm never going to stop loving you. But Throwing a party for someone when they're doing something that, you know, they're turning their back on their faith is a whole different matter. Again, a special mailbag edition of Open Line Monday. Uh, Kurt would like to know, how should I respond to someone who says that abortion is okay because we don't know if the baby is a person? <laughs> well, we do know it's a person. I mean, theologically we know this because uh, we have the instance of the incarnation where uh, when the angel Gabriel said to Mary, you're going to be the mother of the Savior, and she says, be it done to me according to thy word, uh, that the Annunciation is when the Incarnation took place. And then Mary goes in haste to see her cousin Elizabeth. Now, in haste meant a day or two or maybe three at the most that she's been she's conceived. That's certainly an embryo in anyone's uh, mind. And when she goes to visit Elizabeth, the unborn John the Baptist, who's already six months in his mother's womb, still unborn. Jesus is only one, two, three days um, conceived and unborn in his mother's womb. The baby John the Baptist leaps in joy because not protoplasm has arrived. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's that Jesus has arrived. And so that's the most 
positive, powerful scriptural reference that we begin at conception. And then scientifically, again, when you look at the embryo, uh, if they were to analyze the DNA, it's human DNA, and it's distinct, similar, but distinct from mom and dad. Any other part of mom is mom. It's the same DNA in her toenail as is in her earwax. But the baby, once the egg is, is fertilized and you've got an embryo, it's distinct. It's, it's a unique human being. It's a person. Um, give us a call at 833-288-EWTN after 4 p.m. Central Time if you'd like to be part of a future mailbag program. Let's take a listen to one of those calls now. Uh, my name is Irene, and I am calling from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And I uh, had a question and wanted to know at what point and who decided that priests should be not get married, that they should be celibate. So uh, that's my question. Thank you. Okay. Very good. <clears throat> well, it was, first of all, it was the Council of Elvira around 306 A.D., where celibacy in the Western Church um, what became uh, normative, and then it became mandatory in the 11th century uh, when Pope Gregory insisted that this would be not just the norm, but it would be the way um, for the Western Church. Now, in the Eastern Church, uh, the Byzantine and other Eastern Catholic churches, they had married clergy from day one, or at least the option. Um, the bishops always came from celibate clergy, um, the rest of the priests would be um, married, or if they were, they chose, they could be celibate. Uh, in the Latin Rite Church, um, that was not the case. Uh, like I said, from 306, it was the norm. Around um, in the 11th century, it became mandatory. But even today, it's still mandatory, except for those cases where um, someone's coming in from another religion. We've had in my diocese in Harrisburg. And other dioceses, we've had Anglicans, Episcopalians, Lutherans who were married as ministers and then came into the Catholic Church. They came in as a married man. They were ordained as a married man. That has no impact on me because I was ordained as a single man. Um, so what was uh, what you come in is is what's the uh, essential there. That even in the Eastern Orthodox Church, uh, you have to be married before you're ordained. Uh, that takes precedence in that sequence. Um, now, celibacy is a discipline. It could change, but I don't think it will change because in the Western Church, we see great value in there. Uh, there's more than just symbolism. Uh, there's a, a sp spiritual benefits. But the same token, I can't look down my nose at Mary clergy because we do have them in the Eastern Church. We've got some Latin Rite priests who came in as Protestants. So uh, I can't say that celibacy is the only way, but in the Latin church, it is the, the normative way. Be sure to check out Take Two with Jerry and Debbie tomorrow at noon Eastern time right here on EWTN Radio. Uh, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. Lisa writes in, in Luke chapter 23, verse 49, it, rever it refers to, quote, all these acquaintances and women, unquote, watching the crucifixion. Were the apostles included in that group of acquaintances? No. <laughs> the, 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 the pious tradition and sacred tradition would be that the apostles were not there. The only ones that we are confident are there was St. John. 
uh, who was at the foot of the cross with Mary. The other apostles abandoned him. And I think that was part of Jesus' suffering, is seeing and knowing that he was abandoned by most of his uh, apostles. Um, the other acquaintances could have been anybody of any other persuasion, remote friends, distant relatives, uh, next-door neighbors, uh, you know it, uh, any, any of uh, those uh, designations. But as in terms of the apostles, I think we're pretty confident that John was the only one who remained there. And I believe, this is just my personal opinion, that he was there because Mary was holding on to him. Uh, she needed someone to support her, and I, because he was the beloved disciple, I think he felt he needed to be there. And uh, Paul writes in, what is Jesus' teaching about the desire for wealth? Well, I think he makes it clear that, um, you know, if it's avarice or greed, then it's a sin. Uh, if someone wants wealth so they could use it to help people, that's a good thing. But we have to also realize we have to put it in context. We have to also use it prudently, and we have to be just and fair about it. So it's not money. It's the love of money is the root of all evil, and that's very important. It's the love of money. The acquisition of money in and of itself is not wrong. Uh, so if you, if you do well in the stock market, it's not a sin, but it's what I do with it. You know, do I share do I, am I socially conscious? Do I, you know, um, do I give money to my parish and to charities? Um, you know, whether it's 5%, 10%, you know, I'm not into percentages, but, you know, do you leave something in your will uh, to good things like EWTN and other uh, projects? These are all things that, you know, come into the equation. Let's take a listen to another one of our listener comment line calls. If you die and go to any place besides heaven or purgatory, what happens with your guardian angel? <laughs> okay, well, that's a good one. <laughs> when you die, um, if you end up in the bad place, if you go to hell, um, your guardian angel, your contract ceases and dissolves right at that very moment, okay? Uh, your guardian angel can't do anything, and your guardian angel doesn't want anything to do with you. Uh, if you're in purgatory... Your guardian angel is still praying for you because we believe in the communion of saints that prayers are efficacious. Um, now, whether or not once you get into heaven, if you get into heaven, does your guardian angel get reassigned? I don't know. Some people ask me that. Uh, do they recycle them? Do they get new, new assignments like the priests do in the diocese? I don't know. There's so many angels that it's not necessary that you get a, a, a rerun. <laughs> Taylor asks, why was Jesus' garment seamless? Is this significant? Well, I think it's the symbolism that, that's uh, involved there. The seamless garment, I mean, that was one whole piece uh, that you know wasn't in parts, I think was to show the continuity between the Old and the New Testament. And when the, the curtain in the Temple of Jerusalem, which protected uh, the Holy of Holies, the where the the uh, Ark of the Covenant uh, was where the Ten Commandments and the, the manna and the staff were contained there. When that, when that curtain was torn in two, it was obviously no longer one piece. And that was the, a sign that the Old Covenant came to a close. And with the New Covenant was Jesus' seamless garment. And therefore, you know, the soldier said, let's not tear it, let's keep it intact. Uh, Dominic wants to know, if Satan could be ejected from heaven, does that mean we could be thrown out of heaven? 
Well, he wasn't thrown out of heaven. Um, once you're in heaven, you're in heaven forever. Um, the angels, Lucifer and his one-third, uh, were not yet in heaven. Uh, they were in some place outside of heaven. I don't know how you want to describe it because they didn't take up space. They didn't have physical mass. But they were put to a test, and St. Michael, Raphael Gabriel, and the other two-thirds who remained faithful, they got into heaven. Lucifer and his gang were cast into hell, but they were not thrown out of heaven as we understand it. They may have been thrown out of the heavens, meaning someplace out in the sky or something like that. But once you're in heaven, you're in possession of the beatific vision. You see God face to face. You have the uh, suum bonum, the supreme good. You have truth itself. So your intellect and will are perfectly satisfied. So you can't want anything but God and to be there. So there's no way you can get out of heaven. So therefore, the angels who went bad had to have been outside of it when they had their test. Camille wants to know how she can explain to someone that the Catholic canon is the true canon of the Bible. Well, because it's it's based on the church. Uh, Jesus said to Peter, thou art Peter, upon this rock I will build my church. And it's the church who has the authority, who hears you, hears me, as we see in St. Luke. So with that authority to loose and to bind, the church had the authority and has the authority to say, okay, these books belong, these books do not. Because the books themselves don't tell you. There's no table of contents in the original manuscripts. Uh, there's not in Genesis. There's not one in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Sacred Scripture does not have any table of contents. They don't even have chapter and verse that was put in a thousand years after uh, the last book of the New Testament was written. But the church allowed those things. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? Certainly, but a blessing of Almighty God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Amen. On behalf of our host, Father John Tregilio, our producer, Michael McCall, I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in to this mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. We'll be back at it again next Monday, taking your phone calls live on EWTN's Open Line Monday. Until we get together tomorrow, God bless.